Open your Bibles, please, to uh, Judges 13, Judges chapter 13. We will actually be looking at pieces of uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 this morning as we consider the life of Samson from the big picture perspective, looking at all of it. You know, biblical skeptics, uh, theological liberals, so-called higher critics, they have long uh, taken pot shots at the reliability of the scriptures, and you know, usually their arguments boil down to this. They, they say something more or less like this, when I read the Bible, it just doesn't does not align with the truth that I perceive all around me. And, and, and really, if you analyze that, what it comes down to is this, that I see things one way, the Bible says them another, and I'm going to trust myself over the Word of God. And so you see uh, these critics, they say things like, you know, well, there's, n- there's no archaeological evidence for Moses, therefore he must not have existed as if there couldn't yet be some discovered, or as perhaps because he was a nomad, he never built a city, and archaeology is not going to uncover him. But that's the claim they make. And, you know, it's, it, they, they, they do these things. I don't see any miracles happening today, therefore miracles must never have happened. And it's common for skeptics to cast aside the word of God on these grounds. And I will say that as a general rule, I've had very little sympathy for that, for in the end, it, it, it is arrogant. It is putting your own judgment over that of which God has proclaimed. It is saying, because I don't see it, it can't be. And yet I have to be honest with you and say this. That we stand now in front of a text with which I personally have a great struggle. I have no problem accepting the bodily resurrection of Jesus as an established historical fact. I I don't quibble over the virgin birth. But the idea that a pretty boy with long flowing hair would exhibit God's power and then when he's bald, he's weak, I just can't accept that. I don't see how that can possibly be the case. For clearly... Strength and personal worth does not rest in one's hair. Yet what we do have before us is an interesting account of Samson, of a man who is born to be God's servant, born to be God's savior, born to exemplify and typify the salvation that would one day come more fully and completely in Jesus Christ. We see in this man, born of a barren woman, great superhuman, great strength. We see in this man, a one in whom every attempt to thwart him, every attack against him, gets flipped back on the attackers and causes great grief and misery on their heads rather than on his. We see in this man, one in whom his own weakness becomes the very venue and avenue by which strength is made manifest. And for many readers, he seems like a a Hebrew Hercules, more myth than man. But his story is recorded so that we might become acclimated to God's way of doing things. Think about that for a moment, and we will talk about this more throughout the sermon. But had Jesus of Nazareth just dropped into history without any uh, 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 
uh, uh, precursor, without any uh, uh, warning, without any uh, uh, forerunner, we would have struggled to see him as a savior. For he died. Saviors aren't supposed to die. He had this inherent frailty and weakness of his humanity. And saviors aren't supposed to be weak and frail. And we would struggle to accept Jesus. And so what we see in the scriptures is God frequently showing us the way he does things so that when he does the thing, those who are listening, those who are prepared by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, see it for what it is. And Samson is one such character. Just as the lives of Moses and David and countless others prepare us for the one who is the greater Moses and the greater David, so Samson prepares us for the one who is the greater Samson. He prepares us for Jesus of Nazareth. And as we look at this this morning, we're going to see how God plans things, how God planned the salvation that he wrought through uh, 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 Samson, and we're going to see it parallel uh, uh, really profoundly the salvation that he planned through Jesus. Let's pray before we take a look at these passages this morning. Spirit, guide our understanding. Let my words be in accord with your message. If I should say anything that is inappropriate, untrue, out of line, misconstrued, taken out of context, let it be forgotten. And only what is true, what is your word, what is your message, let that resonate in our hearts and minds and let it comfort us and cause us great joy, cause us to overflow with confidence in the Jesus who saves. Because you sent him, because you worked through him, because you worked even through his weakness that his strength might prevail, because you are the one who is guaranteeing the outcome, let us rejoice in him, even as we consider Samson this morning. We pray this in the name of that Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We will not read all of four passages, for there's simply just too much there to fit into one service, or to even digest all at one time. And we are going to be trying to take kind of a look at the big picture, the overview of Samson's life. This is our last week looking at the different people who were judges. Next week we go back to the book of Acts. So as we close this out, I would encourage you, though, to go back and read these four chapters There are some really wonderful details in these stories, some wonderful blessings in these stories that simply are not going to be a part of this morning's message, and yet I would not want you to to miss out on them. So please take a look at uh, Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. But this morning, let's start with Judges 13, verse 1. Judges 13, 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Yahweh gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now what's going to follow in the verses that come next is God's salvation. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But I say that to say this. This is somewhat familiar. If you've been with us in the book of Judges, you have seen this pattern. Sort of. You have seen the pattern of the people falling into sin and of God giving them into the hands of the surrounding nations to discipline them, to punish them, to bring them back to him. 
And we have seen how God, they cry out to the Lord and God has sympathy and compassion on them. And because he loves them, he saves them. But something interesting happens here. We are near the end of the time of Judges. The first king is just a few decades away. We are just a few decades before the rise of Saul. We are near the end of the time of the Judges. We are now some 250 or more years from the beginning of the book of Judges, where we were just a few weeks ago. And what happens here is something interesting. Did you notice what's missing from 13.1? The people do not cry out to the Lord. They have become accustomed to oppression. They have become accustomed to living under the thumb of those around them. They have lost sight of the freedom that was supposed to be theirs in the salvation of their God. And they have become accustomed to oppression. So much so that for 40 years they've been under the Philistines and they don't even know enough to cry out to their God. You know, we tend to think that salvation begins when we go to God. When we say to him, save me. When we say to him, help me. But what we see here is that salvation begins when God intervenes in our lives. For the reality is that the vast majority of the time, apart from the grace of God opening our eyes, we are like the goldfish that does not know it's living in water. We don't know that we're living under oppression. We don't know enough to think that it could be any other way. We can't imagine any other situation. And if God waited for us to call out to him, no one would be saved. What does Paul say in Romans 3, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11? There is no one righteous, no one seeks God. And the salvation here, you say, well, yeah, but pastor, earlier in Judges, they did cry out to the Lord. But these are already the people of God. They have experienced some freedom. They were set free from Egypt. They are the saved. It's not the Canaanites who are calling out to God. It's not the, 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 the Moabites who are calling out to Yahweh. They wouldn't know enough to know that. And what we see here is a picture of even the people of God reaching a point where they don't realize the mess they're in. And God, in his love, in his compassion, and in his care, he comes in and says, I'm going to save you. And the first thing we see in the plan of God's salvation is that he foresaw our need. He foresaw our need. He's the one that looked at us and said, you are in trouble. And we wouldn't even know it if he hadn't stepped in and made us aware of it. You know, the New Testament picks up this idea in, in key verses, important ways that said, we see uh, verses like this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And this is love, not that we first loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Salvation belongs to our God. It begins with our God. 
It is his plan, not in response to anything we have done, but to his intervention among those whom he loves because he wants to save us. And even the people of God have gotten to a point where they don't realize how bad it is and how desperately they need help. It'd be akin, to some degree, of a, of a doctor sitting in a group of people like this and a doctor happening to, happening to notice uh, the behavior of one of the people and uh, the, the, the color of their skin and the, the look in their eyes and the way they're, they're, they're moving and going, I think those are symptoms of a serious disease and the person doesn't even know they're sick. They don't even know they're dying. They wouldn't on their own go to a doctor and seek help. And yet the doctor intervenes because the doctor sees what we don't see. In God's plan, he foresaw our need and initiated salvation. Let's look at the next two verses. The next two verses, we read this. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. God, having foreseen our need for salvation, now plans and provides the actor, the Savior, the one who will do the work. He steps in to provide. Now, up until now, there's been a little bit of a a feeling of an ad hoc salvation in the book of Judges. Othniel just, you know, he's there, he, he performs this great feat, defeating a certain city, and so he gets made a judge. Well, of course, yeah, God just kind of just, it was convenient. Othniel was there, God just put, took him and put him in place, and yeah, that's how that worked. And to some degree, we see some of that with Ehud, and even Gideon to a degree, but here we see um, God saying, no, it's not an ad hoc salvation. I don't just happen to get lucky and a guy shows up who can provide salvation. I am planning this salvation and I am working out every detail of it. Even to the point of bringing him to be who does not yet exist. And bringing him to be in a way that I have to get the glory. It is interesting how often we see this pattern of women who, by earthly account, cannot have children. Having children. Sarah is, I, I, the others I won't go into detail, but there's worth a little detail in the life of Sarah. Sarah is barren. and She cannot have children. And through a, 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 just an abysmal, horrible sin of her husband Abraham, she becomes, for a time, a wife in the court of Pharaoh. And does not bear any children to Pharaoh. What might have been, you know, when Abraham and Sarah can't have children, you might say, well, you don't know which one of them it is. Maybe it's Abraham's fault. Maybe it's Abraham's problem. But being married to Pharaoh, she has no children. Then what happens? They leave Egypt and they take an Egyptian handmaid with them. And Abraham has a dalliance with Hagar and bears a child. The double confirmation that the barrenness rests with Sarah. Not with Abraham. Abraham's not the infertile one. It is Sarah who is infertile. So now we have confirmation. She did not have children by Pharaoh. He does have children by Hagar. And now they're very old. So that the world would say, 
Even in the days when she could have had children, she ain't having children anymore. And then she has a child. Why? So that the glory would go to God. So that everyone would know that this child was the miracle child of God. So that Paul could take up that issue in the New Testament and say, we know that Isaac is a child of the promise. Look how he came to be. We see this again with uh, Rebekah and Rachel, barren women. And then, of course, there really are, what, you know, two categories of women that can't have children? Those who are barren. But when that happens, you could say to yourself, well, she was barren for a time, and then eventually she had a child through natural ways. But what is the other category of women who cannot have children? Well, it's the virgin. The one who has never had sex. She cannot bear children. And what is to be the sign of Emmanuel? What is to be the mark that this is the one who comes clearly from God? The child born to the woman who cannot have children. We see here in Samson's life, That model being portrayed. God saying, you will know that I'm the one at work when these sorts of things happen. When women who cannot bear children bear them. Our God saw our need. And so he initiated and began to act on our behalf out of his love and compassion. Then he acted in such a way that he alone would get the glory. That no one could say, well, yeah, that's just, you know, he came along. That's how things happen. People have kids. No, this is a barren woman who now has a child. What do we see next? We see God orchestrating all of the action Related to the salvation. We see God at work. We're going to jump down now to the beginning of chapter 14 and look at some verses there. Chapter 14 opens with the account of a a young Samson. All the impression is, he doesn't give his age, but all the impression is he's a pretty young man still. And a young Samson, he, uh, the, 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 the text tells us he, he was out and he sees this Philistine woman and he comes back and reports, and really the, the, the Hebrew, there's something interesting that doesn't really come through readily in the English translation, no fault of the translations. But when he comes back to mom and dad, he, he really says to them, I have seen the woman. I have seen the woman. The one who defines all women. The one who is the standard by which femininity should be judged. I have found the woman. And of course, mom and dad are happy. Having once been barren and having no children of their own, at this point they are thinking, great, now we're going to have grandchildren. How exciting is that? And then Samson drops the bombshell about his bombshell. Oh yeah, she's a Philistine. What? The angel of the Lord came to me, your mother, and told me that you were going to be the one who saves us. Or technically, it says that we skipped over it, but begins to save us from the Philistines. How can you marry a Philistine? And we could be dispirited at this point, as his parents were. And think that God's plan has run off the rails and is not going to be fulfilled. But I would encourage us to look at the bookends of this section. The first bookend, go back to 1325. 
And by the way, that right there is a subtle and important reminder to us. Verse and chapter distinctions, they are incredibly helpful. They're a wonderful tool for the study of God's word, but they can get in the way. When we think this story starts in 14.1, we're going to miss the importance of 13.25. Let's read 13.25. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him. What happens next, what comes in 14.1, his meeting this Philistine woman, his desire to marry her, was because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, stirred him up. Then we see in uh, uh, 14.4, look down at 14.4, his father and mother, oh, actually, yeah, sorry, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God had ordained what was happening so that he would have a way to begin to work to overthrow the Philistines, to punish them for their faithlessness and to free his people from them. There might not be any aspect of living by faith that is harder to accept than this right here. That God would choose to work in ways that distress us, that unnerve us, that terrify us. What a a difficult situation. Sympathize with these parents. Oh, it's easy to just say, well, God was at work. God was at work. No big deal. That's a big deal. Your child is marrying a heathen. And God hasn't come and told them that it's the way in which he's going to save his people. And they now live in great consternation and frustration and anxiety. What are you doing, Lord? You told us our son would save us from the Philistines, and he's marrying one. And like the bewilderment of Job, we get a look behind the scenes. We see what's happening, but Job never knows. He's never told why all that happened to him. He's told to walk by faith. And Manoah and his wife are are, are never told. They don't know that it's God doing these things. And many of us face these sorts of situations in our lives. Terrible heartbreak, terrible pain. A loved one who seems to be going astray. A friend who seems to be doing it all wrong. Pain in our personal lives. Anxiety in our our professional lives. We wonder, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I'm not saying that his parents should have blessed the marriage. I'm not saying that his parents should have uh, been excited about this. But the reminder to us is to continue to walk by faith. Through the difficult times, through the adversity, through the confusion, walk by faith. Walk with the Lord. Stay with him because he stays with you. 
I mentioned that we were going to be studying the confession of faith, and one of the paragraphs that I, what a blessing it was to me the first time I read the Westminster Confession, and one of the paragraphs above all others that really blessed me was this one right here, which says this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. God did not cause Samson to pursue a pagan wife in the sense that he, that, that Samson wanted to do anything else. That Samson was forced to do something he didn't want to do, but rather God established the mechanisms by which these things would unfold. God ordained all these things, everything that happens. And by the way, this is not always comfort. Sometimes this is tremendous frustration with God. I believe that you are sovereign. I believe that you ordain all things. I believe you're in control, and that's precisely why I'm so frustrated right now. Why are you doing it? But then we remember that in that moment, what have we done? We've just said, I'm smarter than God. I'm wiser. I can foresee all the way these things work together, and I've decided there's a better path, God. And we are reminded that that is, that's some serious arrogance right there. We say, Lord, give me the faith. Let me continue to trust you and walk with you. Let me believe that you are working about to fulfill your promise in Romans 8. You know, the passage in Romans 8 is plural, but I think we need to make it singular sometimes. I know. I know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those, to me, who is called according to his purpose. Not always going to understand it. Not always going to like it. But we believe that God will work it out for our own good. God was at work through the life of Samson because he saw that we needed a savior. And God was at work in the life, bringing about the life of Samson to provide that savior. And God worked in the life of Samson to orchestrate all the details by which salvation would come to fruition. And now we see that God prepares us. He prepares the way for that salvation. He prepares us. We see the uh, the Samsonic equivalent of John the Baptist. Look at verses, uh, uh, chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father and his mother what he had done. We are prepared, in principle at least, for Samson's strength. In this uh, uh, incident, we see a glimpse as to how God is going to manifest himself in Samson. Up until this point, we have not known 
how this was going to happen. Was Samson going to be a great uh, leader of men? Was he going to be a phenomenal general with incredible strategy and tactics? Was he going to be some political leader who could unite the disparate tribes of Israel into a united whole and, and bring their full strength to bear on the Philistines? How was he going to be a salvation? And now we see a glimpse of it. He has phenomenal physical strength. He has phenomenal physical strength. God has prepared us to see it. David would have the same. We would see in David's childhood the characteristics by which he would later become the king that he was in the way that God would use him. I don't know, but you know, we see in Daniel's youth the characteristics by which Daniel eventually goes to be used by God and be a servant. We see these things... Uh, glimpses of these things shown to us so that when they are put to work by God, we, we recognize that God is at work in them. I don't know, perhaps Noah built ships in a bottle as a child and then eventually built the ark. I, I don't know. Maybe it played out that way with him. But we see this pattern. And what do we see in Jesus? Don't we see him giving glimpse of his divinity to his own? Do we not see him revealing who he is? So that we see in him the strength by which he will eventually save. He is able to overthrow the effects of the curse. He can heal broken bodies. He can drive out demons. He can calm the storm. He can even raise the dead. He shows these things along the way so that his disciples, his followers, those who are paying attention will look up and go, oh, right. He has that strength, he has that ability. And that's where God is going to work through him. But Jesus also revealed inherent weakness in his humanity. We must never forget he was fully human. And he bore in his humanity all the weaknesses that we bear. He got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. He was emotionally distraught over the effects of the fall, crying when his friends died. He has in himself all the weakness of humanity. And so now we see in Samson his frailty, that which is going to bring him down. Skip down in chapter 14 to verses 16 through 19. Chapter 14, verses 16 through 19. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. Quick reminder, uh, he kills the lion. He comes back upon the lion a few, some days later. Got to be several days later because you know, the, the, in, the innards have been ripped out by the vultures and the carcass is open, and, and there's a, 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 a beehive in there, and he gets some honey out of it, and he gives the riddle at the party at the wedding feast. Um, uh, his father-in-law invites a bunch of you know, 30 young men from the community to come celebrate. I, I think maybe father-in-law was trying to marry off the other daughters, and there's some hints of that in the text. If you read it later, you'll see. Um, and Samson makes a, a bet with the other of these 30 young men. I'll give you a riddle, and if you can solve it, you know, I'll give each of you a new set of clothes. If you can't solve it, each of you gives me a new set of clothes. And they agree the riddle, you know, so he gives the riddle, uh, um, you know, out of the eater, something to eat, uh, uh, out of the strong, something sweet. And it's the honey he got out of the lion's carcass. So we see that here. And he said to her, behold, uh, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. 
And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And the next verse reveals that Samson knows how they figured it out. He knows that his wife has betrayed him, his his soon-to-be wife, his betrothed. And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer. Boy, I don't know. Today, that's not an analogy, husbands, I would recommend you use. Don't, don't, don't call your wife, don't refer to your wife as a heifer. But, uh, but Samson does so, he's pretty upset. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. We are prepared for Samson's weakness. We see here the very weakness by which he is going to fall. He has an affinity for manipulative women. And they are going to bring him down. But then something interesting in verse 19, we keep reading. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And what we begin to see here in verse 19 is God's salvation working through weakness. The weakness becomes the opportunity for the strength to be applied. And we've seen Samson's strength, physical in his case. We've seen his weakness, women in his case. And now we see how the two God is going to use those two. Through his weakness, Samson now takes vengeance upon the Philistines. And he kills 30 of them. And we begin to see God's salvation coming through Samson. We begin to see God's salvation coming in the weakness, through the weakness of Samson, as a venue by which his strength might be played. We begin to understand what the Holy Spirit said to the Apostle Paul. Remember Paul pleading with the Lord, take away my weakness. And what does God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And it was precisely in Christ's weakness, his inherent humanity, his mortality as a human being. It was in that weakness that the enemy thought they had victory. But it was through that weakness that the strength of God became manifest. His power over death. His power to overthrow the verdict of humanity and the verdict of death. His power to free us through the very thing that is our own inherent weakness. Our mortality. And here we see in Samson a picture of that. That it is God's plan of salvation to to work through these weaknesses. And he prepares us to understand that. So that when it happens in the Christ, it's not quite such a surprise. So that we go, oh yes, should have seen that coming. I got to believe the apostles, all those who were in dire and deep despair on the evening of Good Friday... When Jesus is dead and in the tomb and they are mourning and they go to the grave on Sunday morning fully expecting to find a body. And then he's not there and he's risen. I got to believe in the years later there were a lot of discussions, a lot of them going, oh, how could we not see it coming? God had told us this is how it was going to be. He had given us the picture of it ahead of time. How did we miss it? That's part of what we need to see in Samson. Don't be shocked By God's salvation through Jesus, he's prepared us for it and told us it was coming. Finally, 
God having foreseen our need when we did not, raised up a Savior that we would not have imagined coming from demonstrating his power at work. He orchestrates the, the details of the life to bring about that salvation, working through those things, stirring up Samson, giving him the Philistine wife. We see then how God reveals to us both the strength and the weakness that become the venue, the conduit for salvation to be implemented. Finally, we see that God's plan cannot be thwarted. That God's plan cannot be cast aside. It cannot be overrun by any number of efforts. The next section is chapters 15 and 16. I'm going to just kind of summarize the the key events of chapters 15 and 16 rather than reading them. So what we see in 15, 1 through 5 is this. Samson, having stormed away, angry at how his new bride betrayed him, goes back home. He calms down. He gathers himself. I don't know what you were like as a young man, but I can relate to this. That whole, and then later, okay, calm down. I still go through this. Calm down. And he goes back to his wife, and he takes a bouquet of flowers. Actually, he takes a goat. That's another one I wouldn't apply today, man. I don't think I'd bring your wife a goat when you've offended her, you know. Try it, maybe. He takes a goat. He goes back down to his father-in-law's house, and he says, I've thought about it. I've calmed down. I promised to marry her. I want my wife. And the father-in-law goes, oh, boy, we got a problem. Because when you stormed out of here, I just kind of assumed you were never coming back. And I gave your wife to your best man, and she's married to him. And we begin to see right here, this is going to be the first of a pattern where the Philistines are going, oh, we have a problem with Samson. (gasps) I've got an idea. I know how to solve it. And the solution they come up with is going to be exactly what Samson uses to destroy them. And the father-in-law says, you know what? Truth is, her younger sister was prettier to begin with. Why don't you just marry the younger sister? And Samson becomes very angry. And he unleashes, this is the, uh, the account of where he takes the foxes and he ties torches to the tails of the foxes and he releases them into the fields and they run through the, it's harvest time, the, 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 the crops are drying out and they, he run, the foxes run through and light all the crops on fire and they burn off uh, all the crops of the local Philistines as his revenge for his wife being taken away from him. That which they intended to be a solution becomes the very thing that costs them. We then see in verses 6 through 8, um, the people saying, well, now we got a new problem. The Samson guys, now he's burned all of our crops. we got to deal with him. What's going on here? Well, it's the crazy in father-in-law. That's what keeps being the problem. The father-in-law is the one who gave away his wife, and that's why Samson's mad. If we just deal with the father-in-law, so they go and they burn down the house of Samson's father-in-law and killing the father-in-law and his wife, Samson's wife. Killing them both. Thinking, now we've dealt with it. Samson's obviously very angry at his in-laws, so if we just kill them on his behalf, problem goes away. And Samson becomes even more outraged. And he attacks them again. Bigger, bolder, more of them. And in verse uh, verses 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, it says, he, uh, Samson struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. That is a proverbial saying. In other words, he, he utterly destroyed them. He was stacking up limbs, hips and thighs, like cordwood. 
He is lopping off legs and arms left and right. He is utterly ruining them. Now the, the Philistines say, well, okay, we've tried to deal with the in-laws that were causing the problem. Samson's still not happy. He's causing us more problems. So they try something new. Now let's just do this. Let's go take the, the fight to him. Rather than letting him come down here and attack us, let's go to him. So they gather 3,000 men, or actually, sorry, it's going to be significantly more than 3,000 men. They gather their army, and they invade Israel. And and I'm now looking at uh, verses 11 through 20, 15, 11 through 20, uh, 9 through 20, 9 through 20. They, uh, They invade Israel, and the Israelites, the Danites, come to Samson and go, what have you done? Do you not know the Philistines are our overlords? And you've ticked them off. Now they're just going to come and kill us. They're mad at us. And what's interesting is the book says, the account says that the, 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 the Israelites brought 3,000 men to Samson, which means that they didn't think their 3,000 men could throw off the Philistines, which means the army of the Philistines is bigger than that. Okay? Or at least more well-equipped. And so now the, the Philistines think they've solved their Samson problem. We're going to take the fight to his countrymen. His countrymen will convince him to back down. He says to his countrymen, <clears throat> are you going to harm me? And Oh, no, no, we have no intention of harming you. All you're going to do is turn me over to the Philistines. Yep, that's all we're going to do is turn you over to the Philistines. He said, great, golden, tie me up. And they tie him up, and they march back to the Philistines, and they raise the white flag, and they say, we have the Samson you're looking for. Here you go, take him. And what the Philistines thought was another solution to their Samson problem. Samson, the minute he's in their midst, breaks the cords that have bound him. The text says as if they were dried flax, just crumbling stalks of grain. He breaks the cords that have bound him and he uh, unleashes his wrath and his strength in the very midst of the army of the Philistines, picking up the jawbone of the donkey and using it as a weapon and hacking these men down. He hacks down at least a thousand armed men. Men with shields and swords and spears. And the rest go, okay, I've seen enough, I'm out of here. And they beat it out of there. And again, the solution the Philistines thought they had becomes the mechanism by which God uh, wreaks judgment on them. Then in chapter 16, they still have a Samson problem. They're still trying to figure out how to solve it. And they realize, some they sit down, they have a little power, and they go, okay, what is Samson's weakness? They're like, well, obviously it's women. Why don't we just go back to that? And uh, Samson is in the uh, house of a prostitute, And they lie in wait outside of the house of the prostitute for Samson to come out. He sneaks out in the dark. Apparently, he somehow knows they're lying in ambush for him. And he rips the gates off the city and hauls them out and tosses them and says, you would dare to ambush me? I have now exposed your city. Your city is now defenseless. What you meant to be an ambush on me, I now turn back around on you, and you have no defenses. This repeated pattern. We've got a problem with Samson. We've got to figure out how to solve our problem with Samson. But every solution comes back to bite us. How do we put an end to it? Well, we were on the right track with the woman thing. And we see that he likes Delilah. 
And so Delilah, they go to her and they say, honey, you got skills. He's kind of looking at you. Could you, could you bat your eyelashes? You know, get those hips swinging back and forth. Go over there, do a little flirtation. Get this guy interested and then tell us the secret of his strength. And then we see the back and forth. Delilah comes to Samson and says, what is the secret of your strength? Samson tells her, you know, it's, tie me up with seven new bowstrings and that'll keep, tie me up this way, uh, you know, tie me down that way. And what we see is every time he, he tells her, he goes to sleep, she applies it, ties him up the way that he said, and then she says to him, and then she calls in the Philistines and she says, oh, Samson, she's trying to look like it's not her, you know, uh, oh, the Philistines, Samson, the Philistines are on you. And he wakes up and kills more of them. Each of their attempts coming back to haunt them. They die even more. Finally, finally, she just, yeah, clearly, Samson's not, I mean, you, you kind of, maybe, maybe he's just that classic stereotypical big brawny guy with no brains, but I don't think so. He's got to be figuring out that it's Delilah that's giving away what he's telling her. And yet he tells her the truth. If you cut my hair, I will be powerless. And she cuts his hair, binds him, tells him the Philistines are upon him. He gets up not knowing that his hair is cut and goes to break loose and cannot break loose. And he is captured and his eyes are gouged out and he is made a mockery. He is made to entertain the Philistines, to work mere manual labor. I think they do that because he's just now one of the guys. You don't have all that strength anymore, do you? And then there's that little note there that says, but his hair began to regrow. And his hair having grown back, he prays to the Lord and he says, would you give me that strength again? Would you one more time give me that strength that I might avenge myself upon the Philistines? And he convinces the Philistines to take him in place of his, his, his personal guard. The Philistines bring him out. They've got this huge party. There are 3,000 people on the roof of the Temple of Dagon, plus all of those who are on the main floor. It's a huge party. And they're all drunk and they all want to celebrate how their god, Dagon, has defeated the god of the Israelites by giving Samson into their hands. And they say, bring out Samson, let him dance for us. And they bring out the blind, Samson. And as he's walking out, he says to the boy, I can't see, I don't want to trip. Just put me in contact with the pillars so that I can at least get my bearing. I don't know if you do this, so you know, you're washing your hair in the shower. Okay, I don't wash my hair in the shower. But you're washing your hair in the shower, and you close your eyes, and you're starting to get a little wobbly, so you stick your elbow against the wall. He says, I just need to touch something so I can keep my balance. And he says to the Lord, give me that, give me that strength back just one time. And it says he bows, and I don't know if he bowed in strength that way. There's some confusion a little bit there exactly, but somehow he takes out the pillars. And they're at the center of the temple. And so the, 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 they, it's a load-bearing wall, and the construction comes crashing down. And all those on the roof die, and all those under the roof die. And thousands, and the text says, he kills more in his death, in his dying act, than he killed cumulatively throughout his entire life. And the Philistines are done. And you know these kinds of parties. 
This party at Dagon's temple, these are the, the in-crowd. This is the A-list Philistines. These are all the generals, all the top politicians, all the wealthy people. All the, the Philistines are done a great harm, losing all of their top people. We see this pattern over and over again in the life of Samson. The Philistines have a problem with Samson. They come up with a solution, and that solution becomes an even bigger problem for them, and it costs them even more. And they come up with a new solution, and that solution becomes the source of a bigger problem, and it costs them even more. And we are forced to look at the text and go, the only thing the Philistines could have done, why didn't they learn their lesson? At some point, they just need to go to Samson and say, how do we make peace with you? How do we make peace with you? For everything we try to do comes back on our own heads and costs us even more. And that is exactly what reprobate man does. I've got a problem with God. I've got a problem with Jesus Christ. But I'm going to come up with my own solution. I'm going to go to him under another name. Make him be the God I want him to be. I'm going to go to him in the guise of Shiva. I'm going to go to him in the guise of Allah. I'm going to go to him in the guise of whatever God I want to make up. And it comes back to haunt reprobate man even more. Reprobate man says, well, okay, so it's Christianity, but I'm going to do Christianity my way. It's going to be about the good works. It's going to be about us saving ourselves. And it costs them even more. And reprobate man says, well then, I'm going to settle the problem by just ignoring God. I'm going to dive into naturalism, science, materialism, and pretend there is no God. And it costs them even more. What I'm about to say next falls into the category of my speculation. Do not hear this as a thus saith the Lord. This is thus saith Scott Shaw. But I have often wondered that if, the, if it is not the case that the, the endless permutations of all these different religions, the endless permutations of all these different isms out there is not God's way of glorifying the one true way. Just as every effort to defeat Samson ultimately cost the people who opposed him, so it is that every ism out there is one day going to be shown to be what it is, and that is a false ism. Because if Jesus were one of two ways, well, okay, he's good. If he's the best of three ways or a few ways... But one day, all humanity is going to acknowledge he is the way. The way. And just as every effort to circumvent salvation through Samson became a, 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 a reason for, their, for death to come upon their heads, so every effort we make to go around Jesus Christ is going to bring death to us. If we go around Jesus Christ... In the name of someone else altogether, it's going to be a temple crashing down on our heads. If we go around Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, but we say, well, it's Jesus Christ and good works. 
It's going to be the temple crashing down on our heads. In the life of Samson, we see how God works out salvation. And then we see in the greater Samson, Jesus of Nazareth, how that salvation is perfected and brought to fulfillment. How God saw our need when we did not. How God worked to bring about a Savior through a woman who could not have children. How God works in the details. Even in the sin of mankind, in the sin of the Pharisees, in the sin of the Romans, God is working his plan. We see how uh, uh, even in the midst of all of this, uh, um, God is preparing the way, giving glimpses of his divinity in Jesus, Jesus' divinity, so that we might recognize rightly who he is. But also seeing in him the weakness through which God would work and manifest the strength. That he was mortal so that he could save mortals. And finally, we see that every effort to get saved some other way fails. In the life of Samson, we have a picture of the one true salvation. God's plan of salvation worked out in perfection guaranteed all of him because he loved us. Let's rejoice in the certainty we have that we know the one way. Let's be sure we're telling others about that one way. Let's be sure that we are worshiping and proclaiming at every opportunity that one way. Let us live in the joy of it. Be thankful for it. Recognize that God in his grace made it known to us so that we're not the Philistines who are going to die when the Dagon Temple crashes on our heads. But we are going to be with him when he laughs at the nations, when he scoffs at all the futile attempts of mankind to solve its own problem. We're going to be there rejoicing in what he did for us. Let's do that today. Let's do that every day. Let's do that repeatedly. Let's thank him now in prayer. Lord, let us see in the life of Samson how you have a plan of salvation, how you are at work to bring about your ends and your purposes for your glory and for our good. Let us see in all of the judges, in all of the Old Testament, how you were laying the groundwork and preparing the way for the Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. And now that we are blessed to live on the other side of that Savior and we are blessed to have you make him known to us, let us rejoice in him. Let us live in great confidence in him. Let us share him with all those who do not know. Thank you for this picture. Thank you for these things that you have made known to us through your word this morning. Thank you for the book of Judges. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.